You know, sometimes I just wish that people would leave well enough alone. I mean, for example, I mean, when I was a kid, I absolutely loved Captain Crunch cereal. Absolutely, absolutely love Captain Crunch cereal. And the only thing that I didn't like about Captain Crunch cereal was getting stuck with the last little bit in my, in, from the box. Because when the crumbs went into my milk, the texture was just nasty. And it was slimy. And the other thing that I didn't like was that now that I have bridge work, <laughs> it's a very sticky cereal. But... I still love it. I mean, my wife buys it for me and it's mine. I mean, if you come over to my house for breakfast, you're welcome to have some. But I eat, well, we do. We eat it for everything. I mean, what was really cool was just recently Carl's Jr. did Cap'n Crunch shakes. Yes. But you know what? I truly wish that people would leave well enough alone. Because later on, when marketers were trying to come up with new ways to make Better Captain Crunch. They came up with crunch berries. I like the berries. They're nasty. They're disgusting. And on top of that, worse than that, peanut butter crunch. It is the most vile, disgusting. Why couldn't they just leave the original alone? I mean, I, yes, I am the guy that goes to Baskin Robbins and orders vanilla. I understand. It's my foible. But Captain Crunch, the original cereal was the best. Why couldn't they just leave it and just have us enjoy that classic? And I'll give you another example out of my life, something that you guys probably don't know much about because most of you are not digital and electronic, but those of you who do have this, there's a company called Olive Tree Software Company. They're specifically targeting doing Bible software and Christian books and all of that type of thing. And I have had Olive Tree software on my smartphone for four years. Not just my iPhone, but even the phone I had prior to that. I use it every single day. It has literally become my primary means of Bible study on my iPad. Every single day when I have devotions, I don't open up a Bible. I open up my iPad and I open up my Olive Tree software. And just recently, within the last six weeks or so, Olive Tree has come out with a total revamp of their software. So what that means is, after four years of me using exactly the same format, I now have to figure out how to use my Bible again. Because it doesn't open up the same way. It doesn't look the same way. To find the verses is not the same. It's so much better. I mean, it really and truly is. It's amazing. It's great. But there's a learning curve because it is... It, it's not the same. And I literally spent hours trying to get things the way I wanted it. And then they changed it. And now I had to spend hours trying to get it back the way I wanted it. So why couldn't they just leave well enough alone? Because I was comfortable with what it was. It is good now. And I will enjoy it eventually. <laughs> I am getting to where I love it. Again, it's, it's just been taking some time to get used to it. You give it a year. But, but isn't that the same with just about anything that changes? The changes that come are quite often very good. And quite often they prove to be better than the original was. 
But it is still hard to have things change. And it messes things up when change takes, takes place. I mean, imagine if you were Helen Keller and your mother had the habit of changing the furniture around once a week. It would make your life pretty unbearable, wouldn't it? And the topic I want to talk with you guys this morning deals with a time when God changed horses midstream. And boy, did he mess things up. So I want to talk to you about that this morning. And in order to do that, I need to set the stage by giving us some background. Some of you may already know these scriptures and know them backwards, forwards, inside and out. Some of you have never seen this or read this before. So we're going to take just a real quick look at Leviticus chapter 11. So if you will look at Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus is the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible. Okay, so close your Bible, open the front cover and turn maybe 50 or 60 pages. But Leviticus chapter 11, starting at verses two and going on through the different. So Leviticus chapter 11 starting at verse 2. And the very first thing we're going to see here is that God, through Moses, is giving the instructions to the Israelites about what they may or may not eat. And it says here, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones that you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a split hoof, completely divided, and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud, or only have a split hoof. You must not eat them. And then it begins to list all the different types of animals as example. So very clearly God said, you may not eat this. You may only eat this. Now moving down in Leviticus 11, look at verse 9. Of all the creatures living in the water or of the seas and the water of the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among the swarming things or among the other living things in the water, you are to detest, which means you cannot eat squid. You cannot eat octopus. You cannot eat clam. There are no shellfish. Okay. No crab because it doesn't have fins. It doesn't have scales. So they have, this was the rule. Now, these were, this is what God told them they had to do to be holy before him. Next one. Genesis, I mean, Leviticus 11, 13 and following all the way through to the end. Now he talks about the birds and he talks about the scurrying animals that are running around the ground. And then, then gives this whole long list of the, you can eat this, you can eat this, but you can't eat this. You can't. We don't have time this morning to look into it. But God very clearly from the beginning of his dealings with the nation of Israel said, these are the rules I set for you. You can eat this. You cannot eat this. Don't let it ever happen if you do, because you will not be acceptable in my sight. (sighs) So then God changed the rules and didn't explain why. Let's look at that. (coughs) Excuse me. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts Chapter 10, verses 9 through 20. We're going to read through this quickly because we don't have time this morning to, to read all of these different sections. But just, just be aware 
of, of what's going on. This is the focus of what we're looking at this morning. Verses 9 through 20. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the, on the roof to pray. Um, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was still wondering about the meaning of his vision, men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate, and they called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter... We're told in this section of scripture has is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. This particular day, he goes up to have his private time with God up onto the roof. He's sitting up there and he gets into connection with God and literally goes into a trance. And as such, God gives him this incredible vision and this sheet falls down and it's the sheet opens up and it's filled with. All of these animals that are on the do not eat list. And God says, Peter, you're hungry. Take any one of these animals, kill them and eat them. And Peter is a good Jew. He's a Christian, but he's a good Jew. He has never defiled himself. And he will never defile himself by eating something that was on the unclean list. And you would think that God would honor that. But let's look at what God's response to Peter was. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 15. What does it say there? Somebody read that out. So God's response to Peter's holiness was a harsh response. He didn't say, good job, Peter, you passed the test. I'm proud of you. He went, do not call anything that I declare clean, unclean. Well, that's kind of wrong. I mean, all of his life he's been taught one thing. To honor God, you do this. Now God puts a test before him and he passes the test and he gets chewed out? That's kind of wrong. Again, God changed the horse midstream. And he didn't tell anybody about it. He just changed it. And Peter's sitting there going, what the what? What? And it says in this trance that he's in, it happens three times, which is if you go into numerology and all this other stuff, it talks basically about three witnesses saying the same thing. And God literally is saying, listen to me, Peter, I'm trying to tell you something. And Peter, it says, if you look in in the New Living Translation, verse 17, Peter said, it says, Peter was very perplexed. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But let's see what God was doing in all of this. God has changed horses midstream and he has assignments in this story that he's passing out. First of all, assignment number one, we just saw. God said to Peter, (coughs) excuse me, I have something going on and you need to have your heart prepared for it. Look at verses, um, 
10, chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. 28 says, Peter told the men who'd come from, from uh, Caesarea, from Cornelius' house, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. You see, God had a job that he needed Peter to do. But before Peter could do the job that God was calling him to, he had to effect a change in Peter's way of thinking and in Peter's heart. Everything Peter knew up to that moment changed. Because he had always been taught, you keep yourself separate. You are, a, you are part of a holy nation of people before God. We have been separated by God himself to bring glory to his name and to be holy. And the way we live our lives is to, bring, is to be holy and pure and righteous. And that brings glory to God. And don't you ever cross it. Because if you cross it, you literally are in danger of having your own body be killed. I mean, literally, that's, that's how serious it was in that world. And God changed it. And Peter struggled with this. But a change came about because he, he went on the assignment. He went to Cornelius' house. He entered a Gentile's home. And he said, you know it's against the law for me to do this, but God has shown me that I may no longer think of any person as being impure or unclean, which totally changed what it used to be. Yes, ma'am. Yes, they were not to they were not to have fellowship. They were not to eat. They were not to go into a home of of uh, where they could be defiled. OK, there's a whole list of rules. I mean, hundreds, of, hundreds of rules. But the thing that's interesting to, to think about, where was he staying while he was at Joppa? A tanner's, a tanner's house. What do tanners do? <laughs> Play with dead bodies, animals, carcasses. But he was a Jewish tanner, so that's okay. Anyway, I, we won't go there. I, I don't even want to go there. Now, I said in, I said in, in, in chapter uh, 10, verse 17, yeah, his response, that Peter was, according to New Living Translation, it says he was perplexed. Okay? And I wanted to, to look at that just a, just a little bit. God says, do not call anything that I say pure as impure. And Peter's going, but you, you were the one that told us that this was wrong. And now you're telling me this is not wrong? Was it appropriate for him to be going through that? I mean, was that a, a normal response? So, so when God pulls the rug out from underneath you, you think this is the way he deals with you and all of a sudden he's dealing with you totally different from any way he's ever dealt with you before. It would be appropriate for you to act a little concerned or confused and get, what are you doing, God? Now, it's not being mean. It's not being, un, it's not being belligerent. It's not being rude. It's not being in his face going, what do you think you're doing? But he's just going, I'm really confused because this is going against everything that I thought I understood about you and how we relate to God. What are you doing? Now, I'm going to get back to that. I just want you to have that in your mind. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. There was another assignment that was given. Peter was given an assignment, but there was another significant assignment, and that was Cornelius. If you go back in the chapter, Acts chapter 10, go back to the beginning of the chapter now, and we'll get the first part of this story that we didn't look at earlier. 
In the town of Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer whose name was Cornelius. He was the captain of the Italian regiment. I'm in verse 1 of chapter 10. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor. He prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. Okay, so God sends an angel to give a specific assignment to a devout Gentile believer. In other words, this guy's not Jewish by birth, but he's a God-fearer. He believes in God. He tries to serve God and honor him to the best of his ability. Because of Jewish law, he's not allowed to go into the temple to worship. He can come so far, but not into the worship area. He's allowed to present offerings. He's allowed to help the poor. And he's honored and respected by the Jewish community as a God-fearer. But there's still a line of division because he's a Gentile. He's not of the pure race. He's not the right kind of believer. Um, let's look at 30, 30 and 33 as well. Let me get back to my notes real quick. Yeah. Look at 30 and 33 in chapter 10. Cornelius replied, he's talking to Peter. Four days ago, I was praying in my house at this time, three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now, Send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon and Tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. And the reason I wanted to emphasize this particular passage is verse 33. We are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. Why, if God, why, if God went through all the trouble to send an angel to this Gentile believer's home, why didn't he just charge the angel with presenting the gospel to Cornelius and have done with it? Why did he have to send? Do you realize from Caesarea, which is on the shore of the Mediterranean, down to Joppa, which is on the shore of the Mediterranean, it's upwards of 35 miles. That's a significant amount of time, of, of distance for people to have to travel. So these guys traveled all the way down there, apparently in one day, met him, spent the night and came back. So it was a two-day trip for them. It's a significant effort to bring this man up to his home as they were walking, basically. Why didn't God just have the angel give the message? What do you what do you think would be a reason for that? He was preparing Peter to uh, continue to do that. To continue to do he what? Step out of his world and into the Gentile world and and um, and bring Christ to them and bring the message of salvation to the Gentiles. Okay. Yes and no, because ultimately Peter's role was to continue to minister to the, to the Jews. Paul was eventually the one who became the minister to the Gentiles. But yes, it's true. It was a breaking of the ice in the church. See, 
Think through this. If Cornelius had become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the word of an angel and then tried to join a Christian fellowship in Jerusalem, he would not have been welcomed because he was a Gentile. Because at, up to that point, only Jews could become Christians. And if he wanted to become a Christian in their mind, he would first have to become a proselyte to the Jewish faith, which would include circumcision and all the other stuff he had to go through. And then he could become a Christian. Because only Jews can become Christians at that point. Didn't they go back to Jerusalem or wherever Peter was or the, the original 11 to, when they had questions like that? When they had questions as far as, like, what do we allow? We, we will get there. It's in, it's in oh. my notes. We'll get there. <laughs> Be quiet for a minute. <laughs> well, look at um, verses 34 through 43. Of chapter 10. Peter replied after Cornelius had come and we're listening. We're wanting to hear whatever God has to say. He says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. That's a significant change. That's a significant change in the way church was done. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel. That there is peace with God through Jesus who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, that John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were opposed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all that he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him, on a, put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. And then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Is there any place in there where you heard about them having to become a Jew first? Peter literally gave him an unadulterated presentation of the gospel. God sent his only son into the world so that anybody who believes in him, regardless of race, creed, or affiliation, can have life. And he said at the beginning of it, God has shown me that he is no respecter of persons. He has convinced me in my heart that that he's doing a new thing. In every nation, verse 35, in every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Pretty cool. God grabs a hold of one of the key leaders in the church and says, we're making a change here. And he wholeheartedly listens to the Holy Spirit and walks in what God tells him. Then he goes home. What if no one else understood what he was doing? Look at chapter 11, verse 3. Somebody read that verse for me.
Acts chapter 11. Huh? If you need to, sure. Huh? Okay. incredible evangelistic work you have brought souls into the kingdom glory to God what do you mean going into the house of a Gentile are you crazy what do you think you're doing you defiled yourself you brought shame on us what is this but 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 you don't understand God I don't want to hear God you know the rules this is not how we do it this is not church But God, and he wasn't mean, rude, unkind. Look at verse 17. Somebody read that. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Wow. He wasn't mean, he wasn't rude, he wasn't belligerent, but he was firm because he was fully convinced in his own heart and fully convinced in his own mind that God had ordained this change to the way things were supposed to be done. And as a result of that firm conviction and knowledge and knowing that this is what God has called me to, whether anyone else understands or not, whether anyone else believes me or not, whether anyone else is accepting of this or not, who was I to argue with God. When he told me to do something, I did it. End of discussion. Whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not, this is just reality, folks. And you see, we see this even later on in the book of Acts, where John and Peter say to the Sanhedrin, to the leaders of the Jewish community, is it better in your eyes that we should obey God or obey man? I leave it to you. Just understand, my heart is, I'm going to obey God. So this was a change that, that God effected that was real and lasting in Peter's heart. You see, Christians must do what God asks of them, even if their church doesn't, don't understand, even if the church doesn't support their efforts. I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. I had to go before a board of elders who scrutinized my life. And one of the questions that they asked me, and now that I'm on that board, it is a question that we ask all candidates, what will happen if we say no? And the right response is, I will preach. I will spread the gospel, whether it's in the church of the Nazarene or not. Because God has called me to this. And if you choose not to give me the licensure and the ordination through your denomination, it would break my heart to have to leave, but I will continue to follow the calling that's on my life. And then we go, good job. That's what we needed to hear. Because you have to be fully convinced of what God is asking of you. And then you have to walk in it regardless of who challenges you because the church uh, unfortunately 
is one of the key people that will be used to challenge you when you step out. There was a movie that I watched this week. I had no intention that it was going to be part of my sermon. But I, I wish I had the DVD that I could show you the video because it was just amazing. If you have opportunity, check it out. Blockbuster doesn't have it because I looked. Netflix is where I got it from. The name of the movie is Molokai. Oh, I'll just bring it up here. It's M-O-L-O-K-A-I, Molokai, the, the story of Father Damien or something like that. But this man, his name is Father Damien. He's a Catholic priest, lived in the 1800s. He was, he was um, given the opportunity. He was literally not forced to do this. He was given the opportunity and he volunteered to go establish a parish in a colony of lepers. Now, Molokai is an island that is mountainous. And on the northern shore of Molokai, there is a small peninsula that sticks out that is blocked off from the rest of the island by a cliff. The only way you can access this peninsula is either by water or by air. And back in the 1800s, there was no by air. There was a trail that you could traverse down the cliff, but it was very dangerous and very arduous. And they, what they did was the nation or the nation, the, 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 the government in Hawaii because there was this terrible outbreak of leprosy, they would take people who had been tested and been positively identified as being lepers, and they would send them to Kalaupapa, which is that little peninsula on Molokai, where they would spend the rest of their life. There was no shelters there. There was no provisions. They literally, at some point, they even got to the point where they were throwing people off the ship and making them swim to shore because the sea was too rough to send light, the, the, the rowboats out to the shore. And once you were there, you were never to leave. And they would send provisions every so often. And it was just a horrible existence. Well, the church decided to send a missionary there to establish a parish, a church there, a congregation. And they asked for volunteers. And the idea was they're going to send one for a period of time and then they'd send another and they'd send another. Well, Father Damien was chosen to be the first one. And when he got there, he stayed. He couldn't leave. They became his people. He was instructed before he left by his, by his authority. He was never to touch the lepers because back then they didn't know how this disease was transmitted. They just knew that if you spent time in association, in close proximity to a leper, you will catch the disease. And if you catch the disease, it's a death sentence. So don't touch them. Show them the love of Christ. Administer to them the sacraments. He was a Catholic priest. But do not touch them, Damien. That was one of the very first things he did when he got there. He held them in his arms and he loved them. He touched them and they were just overwhelmed that some human being would be willing to sacrifice his own safety, his own security for them. And it was through that demonstration of his love for them that he ended up winning them to Christ. And you know what else he did? Lepers have a problem with deformity, if you don't know that. Their hands, their feet, their facial features. One of the symptoms or one of the things that happens with lepers is that their mouth produces an overabundance of saliva and their mouth because it's all deformed can't hold the saliva in and they're constantly drooling you know what father damien did 
He remodeled the floor of their church so people could have holes to let their saliva drain down into the floor and onto the ground so that they could worship. He cut a hole in the floor of the church? Yeah. He cut a hole in the floor of the church. Not just one. I saw a picture. There was three for every pew. Can you imagine sacrilege? Defaming the property. Destroying property that's honoring God. Let him drool. Give him a bucket. See, this is not how we do church. And how dare you try to change it. And his authorities did not like him. He was an outcast as a result. And he ended up dying at the age of 49 from leprosy. But he is enshrined on Kala Upapa. There is a monument to his memory because of the love that he had for those people. And he went against everything he was told and everything he was instructed. He followed the leadership of the Holy Spirit and he did what was right in God's eyes. And ultimately, ultimately, things changed on that place as a result of his fight and his effort. And I don't, you just need to see the movie. It's amazing. So my question to us as a church, we've talked about the individual's response. But when God wants to change horses midstream and mess everything up, how should we respond? Well, this gets back to what Elsie was talking about. In Acts chapter 15, the church met because there was a situation that was brewing as a result of bringing these Gentiles in. And the situation was there were some who were part of the Christian church who were strong Jewish people who said, if they are going to be Christians, they have to be Jews first. Therefore, they must be circumcised. And they went up to Antioch, which was the center of the, of the Christian work in the, in the Gentile world. And they started teaching that. And it caused great problems to the believers there because the leaders up there, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were saying, no, that's not right. Well, yes, it is because they're from the church in Jerusalem. They're from headquarters. And so they sent a delegation, it says, down to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the church. And Peter stood up. It was so cool. And we don't have time this morning to read all of it. But Peter stood up and he gave a testimony. And he said, you guys have known for years of what God did in my life and how he called me to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius. And he changed the way we do church. And I'm sorry, but I have to stand on on the side of Paul and, and Barnabas and say, we don't need to require this. But Peter wasn't the last say. There was a, a board of elders and James was the lead. And so they met and they discussed it. And they decided we will write a letter that we will send back with some representatives giving instruction. No, they don't have to be circumcised. And if you look at Acts chapter 15, verse 28, there's a phrase in there that says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that blah, 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 blah. So they, they said, we prayed about it and we felt like God, the Holy Spirit, was leading us in this and blah, 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 blah. But what was the blah, 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 blah? 
Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 29. Acts 15, 29. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to put these restrictions on your life. And I just wanted to vomit. And this is the Bible. It's the Bible. But what I see here is leaders in a church trying to keep from causing a split. Should it be red carpet? Should it be blue carpet? Should we have pews? Should we have chairs? Do we need to put Venetian blinds on these windows? Only on the south, because I like to have the light coming in, but not when the sun's in my eyes. Oh my goodness, I'm touching too close to home. Sorry. <laughs> you don't believe the mis- the, this, this, what I hear. These windows were put in specifically because we love the view, but I hate that sun. So, I mean, it's just amazing. Anyway, we'll go there some other time. I really struggle with this. I really do. I don't see that that, chat, that verse, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't drink blood, don't eat meat that's been strangled, blah, blah, blah. That was humanity putting their own stuff on it. And you know, if you look at the commentators, they say, well, these were things from time immemorial that all cultures did, so it was not an unacceptable thing. And if you look in the next verse, 30 and 31, the believers were overjoyed that the restriction for circumcision was removed, and they were perfectly fine with, okay, I won't eat the meat. Okay, so they, they didn't get offended by it. But think about what happened here. In an effort to try and compromise and appease both sides, I don't think true Christian freedom was established here. Because I believe with all of my heart that if we allow the, the Holy Spirit to lead us, he'll guide us in the path he wants us to take. Did you know that the founder of the Church of the Nazarene, Phineas F. Brzee, literally said that exact same thing when they were struggling over stuff with the formation of our church? He said, we don't need lists of rules telling us how to live our lives. We believe that the Holy Spirit is our Lord. We believe that he speaks to us. And let him be the one to tell us how to run things. But if we want to have this group join us, okay. And so when this group joined us, take off your wedding rings, take out your earrings, don't go to movies, don't go dancing, don't play cards. Is that that big of a deal? It's just like Acts chapter 15, verse 30 and 31. They're overjoyed. We have fellowship with our brothers and sisters and it's not that big of a deal. You know, if you got scruples over something, I can show you in book of Romans chapter 14 and 15 that says, one person thinks one day's holy and another thinks all days are exactly the same. Let each one be fully convinced in their own mind and don't impose your personal stuff on somebody else. Never let your freedom be a cause for stumbling in somebody else's life and never let their stumbling be a cause to hinder your freedom. And let's everyone just live each other's, live their own lives, okay? On the essentials, we've got to be unified.
Jesus is the only way for us to get to heaven. We know that, and we all have to believe that to call ourselves Christian. But so what if you go to movies, and so what if I don't? Who cares? Does that really make a big difference? And if somebody wants to put it in the rule book, okay, it's not going to kill me. It saddens me, but it doesn't kill me. And it doesn't keep me from fellowshipping with other Christians. We have a member of our congregation who said years ago, I will never allow this stuff to keep me from fellowshipping with my brothers and sisters. And I honor that wholeheartedly. And that's what I really think we need to have in our heart as our response. When God begins to change things, we, we need to be focused on what will bring glory to God. How can he be honored through all of this? And maybe I have to give up some of my own desires in order to see unity in the body. And that's okay. Maybe I'll have to put up with Venetian blinds on the windows, even though I hate it. But that's okay. It's not that big of a deal. And it's not going to make me stop coming to church. Because some of the people really would rather not have to worry about the sun in their eyes on a, on a Sunday morning. I'm not saying that that's an issue we're pursuing. I'm just saying that's just a, as an example. Okay? Now, one of the last things I wanted to the, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, and then we're going to wrap it all up. Peter learned a valuable lesson. Peter, a leader in the church, God put him into a trance and gave him a threefold message that was exactly the same. And he changed his heart in preparation for the assignment that he gave him. And Peter walked in it and even years later recalled it and used it as a testimony to bring about the, the, a positive change in the, in, the, in the church and cause it and not cause division and not cause strife. And then we turn to Galatians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 13. And you can turn there if you want, but let me just tell you the story. Paul's talking to the Galatians and he says, you know, there came a time in our history together where my brother Peter, you know, the big guy from the church, the guy, the district superintendent guy, he came down and he was just part of us. He enjoyed fellowship with us. We had potluck meals together and we just had a grand old time. And then there were some of those really stuck in the mud leaders from the general church that came and all of a sudden, Peter pulled back from us because he was worried about what they would think about him associating with these uncircumcised Gentiles. And I had to confront him on it. I just call him on it and say, look, this is ridiculous, Peter. You're the one that stood up there in the, in the council of Jerusalem 15 years ago and you said, now what's going on, Peter? He said, I publicly, I publicly accused him and I publicly called him down on it. And it was wrong and he admitted it. Why would Peter do something like that? What would cause him to go back on what he knew to be truth? Well, if we look at John chapter 18, verses 15 to 18 and 25 to 27, and you don't need to turn there, just understand that this is the story of Peter sitting in the courtyard of the high priest when he's being accused of being a Galilean and one of the followers of Christ on the very night that Jesus was arrested. And what does Peter do? I'm not me. I don't know anything about him. No, I'm calling curses on myself. You don't understand. I'm not a follower of his. It was part of his being to be afraid. It was part of his makeup to respond in that way. That wasn't necessarily a conscious choice that he made. Because if you remember, when Jesus prophesied that it was going to happen, he would never, I would never do that. Never. And then he did. Because it was who he was. Because he had stuff inside of him that he, he caused, it caused fear in his life. And as a result, he responded out of his normal self. 
God changed his mind and changed his heart and he lived it. But when he came back to a time, when he came to a time that brought him back to those old fears, he responded in the old pattern. Because old patterns, old habits are very hard to break. And so there may come a time when God decides to change horses midstream and you go along with it and everything's cool and everything's fine, but all of a sudden some part of it just kind of uh, hits that nerve in you and you all of a sudden respond in the way you always respond whenever that nerve gets hit. And you think, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to cause all this damage. and Oh, it's horrible. You know, that's just part of the fact that we're human beings. When you get saved, when you get sanctified, it doesn't negate all of your baggage. You still have to process through all that. Some of us do it faster and some of us get through all of it before the end of time on this earth and some of us never get through the first box. And you just have to understand and learn and live with it. And so to wrap all this up, when God wants to make changes in our lives. How do we respond? Well, first of all, we need to understand that when God wants to start a new thing, he may not exactly explain his reasons before he starts. Why? Because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. And who are we to stand in his way? When God starts to do a new thing, he will most likely Begin to prepare your heart for that change long before the change actually happens. I asked Pastor Paul Hartley, our district superintendent, when he knew that God was calling him to be the district superintendent, and he said it was weeks before the district assembly. He came to the district assembly already knowing that he was supposed to be the new district superintendent, even before the first ballot was cast. Because God does that with us. It is. See, our response when God wants to change horses midstream should be exactly as Peter responded. Who am I to stand in God's way? That's my daughter calling my wife. (laughs) Who am I to stand in God's way? We should be fully convinced when God calls us to this type of change so that when the challenges come, we can stand our ground in full conviction, in full confidence, knowing the Lord has spoken to me and regardless of what anyone else says to me, this is where I stand and I will not be changed. And then finally, we need to be wary of and set guards around ourselves so that when and if this change that's going on begins to get into my discomfort zone, I don't fall into my normal pattern and end up causing harm. Paul and Peter did not intend to harm the Galatians in any way in that scenario. But harm happened. And that's why Paul had to publicly call him out. And the same thing can happen in our church. It does happen in our church. Things are done, things are said. Situations happen and people just respond out of their own. Ugh. And then you have to mop it all up later. And that's just part of living here on the earth. We are Christians. We love the Lord. He's our sovereign. And we still have to p- pick up vomit every so often. People still break things. 
And it's just the way it is. And I don't think it'll ever change, at least in my lifetime, I don't expect it to change. So I, I encourage you guys. I, I don't have any vision from God telling me that he's getting ready to change anything. I told you this morning that the word for the year is evangelism. What does that mean? I don't know. He'll, he'll walk us through it as the year progresses. But take what I've said this morning and think about it. Mull it over. Look at your own life. Anticipate how you're going to respond when change comes. And be prepared. So that when God begins to call us to change, you'll be ready. And you won't be one of the ones that's the issue. The Pharisees that want to go, you got to be circumcised before you can be a Christian. Or whatever. Okay? Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for this word. I believe that it's from you. And I ask, Lord God, that you would just take it wherever you need it to go. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our souls. Speak to our minds. Bless us. Help us in our leaders to sense what, you're, what you might be doing. It may be that one of the leadership teams hears something from you long before I do. And that's okay. But I just ask God that, that you would help us to be ready when you decide to change horses. And I ask us, God, I ask God that you would help us to honor you through the whole process. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.